and welcome to the turbulent world with me, James M. Dorsey, as your host. The world's largest, most moderate Muslim civil society movement has called for abolishing the concept of a caliphate in Islamic law. In a radical break with Islamic orthodoxy, Indonesia's Nahdatul Ulama, or revival of Islamic scholars, wants to replace the concept with notions of the nation state and the United Nations that are non-existent in Islamic legal tradition. The reform is one pillar of the Indonesian movement's campaign to update, or in its words, recontextualize Islamic law, free it from obsolete or outdated concepts, and deprive militants and jihadists of the ability to employ references to the Sharia to justify their theology, extremism, and violence. Islamic scholars from across the globe discussed the call in February at a day-long gathering in the Javan city of Surabaya. The call was made public at a commemoration of Nadatul Ulama's centennial, according to the Hijra calendar, attended by more than a million people and Indonesian President Joko Widodo. Nadatul Ulama believes it is essential to the well-being of Muslims to develop a new vision capable of replacing the long-established aspiration rooted in Islamic jurisprudence or fiqh of uniting Muslims throughout the world into a single universal state or caliphate, the group said in the declaration read out at the rally. It's a neither feasible nor desirable to establish a universal caliphate that would unite Muslims throughout the world in opposition to non-Muslims. As recently demonstrated by the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, or ISIS, attempts to do so will inevitably be disastrous and contrary to the purposes of Islamic law. That is, the protection of religion, human life, sound reasoning, family, and property, the declaration went on to say. The declaration asserted that Islam faces a choice, maintaining the obligation to create a caliphate or reforming Islamic jurisprudence so that it would embrace a new vision and develop a new discourse regarding Islamic jurisprudence, which will prevent the political weaponization of identity, curtail the spread of communal hatred, promote solidarity and respect among the diverse peoples, cultures, and nations of the world, and foster the emergence of a truly just and harmonious world order. In a discussion paper distributed shortly after the conference and rally, Nadatul Ulama argued that Muslims should acknowledge that a socio-political construct or imperium capable of operationalizing these normative views across the Muslim world no longer exists. And that, as a consequence of choosing to retain the established fiqh view and norms associated therewith, it would automatically be a religious duty incumbent upon Muslims to revive the imperium. This, in turn, would necessarily entail dissolving any and all existing nation states under whose governance 
Muslims currently live. With its assault on the concept of a caliphate, Nadatul Ulama laid down a gauntlet for autocratic and authoritarian Muslim leaders by insisting that change needs to involve reform of religious jurisprudence, not just social change, as enacted, for example, by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and United Arab Emirates President Mohammed bin Zayed. These reforms have enhanced women's social rights and professional opportunities, eased restrictions on gender interaction, and embraced Western-style entertainment. However, the two men anchored these changes in civil law and ignored the need to synchronize religious jurisprudence. Anchoring the United Nations and its charter in Islamic religious law would increase the pressure on regimes in Muslim-majority countries to respect human rights. The UN Charter obliges member states to honor fundamental human rights, the dignity and worth of the human person, and the equal rights of men and women, and makes it legally binding for its Muslim signatories. Muslim-majority states accepted that obligation when they joined the United Nations, but couched their religious legitimacy in the language of Islamic jurisprudence employed by the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, OIC, rather than the law itself. The OIC groups the world's 57 Muslim-majority countries. By reforming the jurisprudence, Nadatul Ulama would introduce guardrails for the incorporation by OIC members of Islamic law into domestic legal systems. Muslim-majority states have used the OIC framework to monopolize the right to interpret Islamic law and bend it to their will. For example, in the justification of abuse of human rights, or in the case of countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, to demand on religious grounds absolute obedience to the ruler. The OIC and some of its members have also used the organization's religious framing and the 1990 Cairo Declaration on Human Rights in Islam to curtail rights enshrined in the UN Charter and lobby the United Nations to classify blasphemy as a violation of human rights and a form of hate speech. In its discussion paper, Nadatul Ulama asserted that the view that Muslims should have a default attitude of enmity towards non-Muslims and that infidels should be subject to discrimination is well established within the traditions of Islamic jurisprudence. An earlier Nadatul Ulama concept note argued that views that legitimize and encourage suspicion, segregation, discrimination, and even hostility and conflict towards those who bear the legal status of infidels are scattered throughout classical texts of Islamic jurisprudence. These views are still considered credible and should be practiced to the present day. Muslim groups involved in conflict, including the use of violence and terror, defend their position by citing references from these classical jurisprudential texts. In 2019, the Indonesian movement put its money where its mouth is, 
when 20,000 of its scholars issued a religious finding that eliminated the category of the kafir in Islamic law. Nevertheless, notions of the kafir and the caliphate remain at the core of the Muslim world's response to religious extremism and jihadism. An open letter to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the late leader of the Islamic State, written after he declared in 2014 a caliphate with himself as caliph, insists that there is agreement among scholars that a caliphate is an obligation upon the Muslim community. The letter was signed by 126 prominent Islamic scholars, including participants in the Surabaya gathering. Among the letter's signatories were state-aligned proponents of autocratic forms of moderate Islam. They included Egyptian Grand Mufti Shauki Alam, Egypt's former Grand Mufti Ali Goma, who religiously endorsed the killing on a Cairo square in 2013 of some 800 Muslim Brotherhood protesters by security forces. Several members of Egypt's state-controlled Fatwa Council and scholars at Al-Azhar, Cairo's citadel of Islamic learning. Among the signatories were Abdullah bin Baya, the head of the Fatwa Council of the United Arab Emirates, and one of its other members, popular American Muslim preacher Hamza Yusuf, men who do the Gulf states' religious bidding. For over two decades, since the 9-11 Al-Qaeda attacks on New York and Washington, Muslim leaders and their Western counterparts have insisted that Islam and Islamic jurisprudence need no reform. Instead, they asserted that jihadist ideology was not rooted in religious jurisprudence and misrepresented and misconstrued the faith. Muslim autocrats and authoritarians have used that argument to squash criticism of their often brutal, repressive rule that brooks no dissent and potentially breeds violence. Moreover, casting jihadists as deviants rather than products of problematic tenets of religious jurisprudence allowed them to project autocracy as a necessary means to combat extremism and promote a moderate Islam. At the core of the debate about Islamic jurisprudence is a battle for the soul of Islam, involving competition for religious soft power and leadership of the Muslim world, and who will define what constitutes moderate Islam. The battle pits Nadatul Ulama's concept of humanitarian Islam, which calls for religious reform and unambiguously endorses pluralism, United Nations Charter, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights against an autocratic definition of moderate Islam that rejects religious and political reform, but supports a formalistic, ceremonial form of interfaith dialogue and the loosening of social restrictions long advocated by Orthodox Islam. Autocrats and their clerical surrogates ignore Nadatul Ulama at their peril. The Indonesian movement is a player with an estimated 90 million followers 
18,000 religious seminaries, 44 universities, tens of thousands of Muslim scholars that constitute a religious authority independent of traditional centers in the Middle East, a 5 million strong paramilitary militia, and a political party that was part of President Vidodo's coalition government and is an influential member of Centrist Democratic International, the world's largest alliance of political parties. The degree to which Nadatul Ulama threatens proponents of an autocratic definition of moderate Islam was reflected in how prominent state-aligned Islamic scholars responded to invitations to attend the Surabaya conference. Mr. Bimbaya and Mr. Goma initially said they would attend, but then backed out. Others opted for making statements on a video link, but not participating in person or any of the conference's deliberations. Mr. Alam used his video remarks to express opposition to Naratul Ulama's proposition. Muhammad Alisa, the head of the Muslim World League, Saudi Crown Prince bin Salman's vehicle for propagating his autocratic version of moderate Islam, chose to ignore Naratul Ulama's proposition in his video statement. Like Mr. Alam, Mr. Alissa had initially indicated that he would attend in person. Theirs is a tactic that at best buys time for state-aligned Muslim scholars. The majority of the Arab and Islamic delegations at the first international convention on Islamic jurisprudence for a global civilization expressed a traditional mindset that has become outdated for they dealt with the centenary of Nadatul Ulama as if it were a carnival, said Mohammed Abu Al-Fadl, deputy editor of Egypt Al-Akhram newspaper in his coverage of the Surabaya conference. If the leadership of religious institutions in the Arab world continues to insist on burying their heads in the sand, then Arab states may require another 100 years to absorb the Nadatul Ulama project in Indonesia, Mr. Abu Al-Fadl went on to say. In the ultimate analysis, state-aligned Islamic scholars are either able to co-opt the Indonesian reformers or will be forced to join the bandwagon. So far, efforts to co-opt Nadatul Ulama have failed. These efforts included the Muslim World League joining Nadatul Ulama in hosting the November 2022 Religion Forum 20, or R20, a summit of religious leaders in Bali on the eve of the meeting of leaders of the Group of 20, G20, that groups the world's largest economies. Indonesia, last year's G20 chair, designated the R20 as an official G20 engagement party. To be sure, Nadatul Ulama's jurisprudential reform is not binding in a Muslim world where religious legal authority is decentralized. Nevertheless, influential commentators in Saudi Arabia and Egypt echoed Nadatul Ulama's call for religious reform without referencing the Indonesian group. All religious institutions must work to create contemporary jurisprudence the Islamic world is waiting for Saudi Arabia to lead it 
towards contemporary jurisprudence, said Okaz newspaper columnist and Jeddah-based lawyer, Osama al-Yamani. Earlier, journalist Mamdou al-Muhaymi proposed top-down Martin Luther-like religious reforms that would be led by Mr. bin Salman, even though the writer stopped short of identifying the crown prince by name. There are dozens or perhaps thousands of Luthers of Islam. As such, the question of where is the Luther of Islam is wrong. It should instead be, where is Islam's Frederick the Great, the King of Prussia, who earned the title of enlightened despot, embraced major philosophers in Europe like Kant and Voltaire, and gave them the freedom to think and carry out scientific research. Mr. Al-Muhaymi said. The journalist's comments suggested that at the very least, Nadatul Ulama has laid down a marker that other Muslim religious authorities will ultimately be unable to ignore if they want recognition as proponents of a genuinely moderate Islam. Commenting on Nadatul Ulama's campaign, Mr. Abu al-Fadl, the Al-Ahram editor asserted, that Middle Eastern Islamic scholars risk missing the boat. The majority of Muslims look to the Arab world for guidance and the failure of this region's Muslim religious scholars to keep up with the transformations taking place lead to the rug being pulled out from under them. For the openness adopted by Nadatul Ulama and its new chairman, Yahya Chulil Stakuf, will not stop at one specific country or region, Mr. Aldo Al-Fadl said. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Diplomats, policymakers, investors, executives, journalists, and academics listen to my twice-weekly podcast and or read my syndicated newsletter that is republished by media across the globe. Maintaining free distribution ensures that the podcast and newsletter have maximum impact. Paid subscribers help me cover the monthly cost of producing the newsletter and podcast. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. You can do so by clicking on Substack on the subscription button at www.jamesmdorsey.substack.com and choosing one of the subscription options. Or support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mideast Soccer. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. Thank you, take care, and best wishes.